Welcome everybody to the Oxford University Centre for Educational Assessment Annual Lecture. I'm Joanne Baird, Director of the Centre and Fellow of St Anne's College. Um, I'd just like to say a few words uh, by way of introduction of our speaker, Professor Gordon Stobart, who most of you know. Um, but Gordon is very uh, modest and he doesn't say all of these things about himself. He's certainly not in the flyer, so I thought you might like to know a little bit more about his background. So Gordon um, started his career as a teacher, as you probably know, and he qualified as an educational psychologist. But he also won a Fulbright scholarship, and um, after studying in the US, he returned to the UK to work in the University of London um, School Examination Board, which is now Edexcel. So he's also conducted research in a wide variety of institutions. Um, as you'll see, uh, he doesn't look old enough, but <laughs> he's been in the National Council for Vocational Qualifications, the Qualifications and Curriculum Authority, and at the turn of this century, he moved to academia. So he's now an Emeritus Professor at the Institute of Education, um, University of London, and he's a visiting professor at the University of Bristol, but he's most proud of the fact that he's an honorary research fellow here <laughs> in the Department of Education in Oxford. So Gordon was a member of the Influential Assessment Reform Group, and his research has continually returned to this theme of the relationship between teaching, assessment, and uh, learning. His first book, Testing Times, actually challenged, began to challenge some of these notions about ability being a simple cause for educational outcomes. And it's been very well regarded in the field. So this evening, Gordon's going to be talking about the theme of his second book, and he develops these uh, arguments in relation to ability and uh, performance. But it's actually broader, it goes beyond education to other fields too. So I'm, I'm delighted to introduce Gordon. He's, he's, been su he's had such an excellent track record and he's a really good colleague. So for example, I, I said earlier that he's very modest. Now if you go to Norway, people regard him as a bit of a rock star. <laughs> in, term of, in terms of his influence on assessment for learning and his work with teachers in schools. But if you're to say this to Gordon, he'll, he uh, says that he's actually more of a folk singer, <laughs> that it was just church halls he was playing. That's not totally true. Now, there's a little bit of a sporting theme to uh, Gordon's um, argument. So I'd li also like to add that he can cycle well over a thousand kilometres. In fact, I think... He went on a 1,000-kilometre cycle ride and added, was it 500 kilometres at the end? <laughs> Something like that. So the question is whether this is inherited ability or a developed <laughs> capacity. So with that, I'd like to hand over to Gordon, and I'm really looking forward to Gordon to hearing more of what you have to tell us about the expert learner. Thank you And if you ever saw my dad ride a bike, there's nothing inherited there. But, um, uh, thanks very much um, for the invitation. Thanks very much for turning out. It's uh, this wonderful group of friends and colleagues here. I say that till I hear the questions they're going to ask afterwards, and I'll reevaluate that. 
And I'd also like to thank Rent a Crowd for just um, bringing, bringing people in. And I realise that people have come from quite some distances as well, so uh, I, I do appreciate that. Hope it was worth. Hope it will be worth the uh, the trip. Um, so I'm I'm going to try and um, cover these things. It's a rough guide because I've got an hour, and who knows where we'll get to, but. Uh, the, the idea of, first of all, the, uh, the 21st century learning agenda, which we hear a lot about, but um, my question is, is it just a policy wish list? What, what's the substance in it? Um, then I go on to quickly look at what kind of learning does the standards, accountability and selection agenda encourage, and my suggestion is that they're often in conflict with the 21st century learner agenda. Um, I then want to pick up the theme of the, um, of the book, the idea of expert learning, um, and I'm using it as a proxy for effective learning. It's a rough proxy, it's a bit like free school meals, really, about it, you know, it's about as accurate as well. Um, in terms of, it seems to me legitimate to say, uh, if these people have got to the very top of their field, the experts, uh, how did they learn? They must have learned something. They must have been effective learners. So that's the, the kind of tenuous uh, approach to that. And then throughout, I'll try and weave in what I think the implications are uh, for the classroom. Uh, that's partly because there's a lot of people written some very good stuff on expert learners, Malcolm Gladwell and Matthew Syed, Colvin, uh, others. Um, uh, but they write either in a business context or a journalistic. There's not been much translation into education and what would that mean for the classroom. So that's, that's what I've attempted to do uh, in the book. Um, let me proceed. Let's, let's begin with the 21st century skills. Um, is it a global policy rhetoric? Um, you know, we, every country's got this stuff going about the globalisation agenda, um, having to prepare people for uh, the, the world uh, of business and competition and knowledge and what have you. I raise the question, is it business-led rather than education-led, this, this stuff? Um, I say that because usually globalisation and 21st century learning is couched in terms of workers. What kind of workers do we need for the future? Um, how can we train our students for a world like this? Rather than what kind of citizens do we want? What kind of people do we want? It's usually couched that way. Um, it's also a wish list. It's got common features across. As you go around the world, you can look at every country and they've got something they're claiming about 21st century learning. Um, probably apart from England, actually, which is more interested in 20th century, possibly 19th century. But, I mean, that's just, it's back to the future stuff um, there. But most other countries are trying to go forward. Um, uh, but what you get is, uh, you get some very different sort of styles of uh, presenting it. Anyway, these are typically uh, a couple, the PISA statement here. Can I check, can everybody read it at the back? Uh, so I'll let you read rather than uh, read it myself. Um, so it, very, very familiar, very familiar stuff. I should say I'll make the PowerPoint available. We haven't discussed this, but we'll, we'll make it available in some mysterious uh, way. Um, I like this one. This is um, Singapore's desired outcomes of education. A confident person, a self-directed learner, an active contributor, 
uh, concerned citizens. <coughs> then we've got Scotland. Um, successful learners, confident individuals, responsible citizens, effective contributors. Um, the word plagiarism springs to mind. Um, um, uh, uh, but who wouldn't want to copy Scotland? Um, uh, if we move on, uh, I've just these are little googly graphics that you pull out very easily, but. Uh, all I'm trying, don't worry about what's in them, it's the numbers that count. So we've got the four C's here, we've got six somethings there, five over there, three over there, 111 in the middle, and, and whatever that is down the bottom. Um, it's merely to make the point that this is a fairly loose kind of list. Um, the, probably the most exact attempt to do it is uh, Patrick Griffin out of Australia. Uh, with his big 21st century learning project, massive project. Um, and these are what he comes up with, and quite like the, the big headings anyway. Uh, ways of thinking, ways of working, tools for working, and living in the world. Um, I've put the stuff in red. My question is, what makes this 21st century, um, really? I mean, did something strange happen on the 1st of January 2000 that suddenly we were all interested in this stuff? As I remember, all it was was a lot of basic programmers had made a lot of money on the, uh, the build-up and nothing happened, really. Um, so the, uh, and the, the great paradox, the irony of Patrick Griffin's work is he got this massive funding. Uh, I think it was Microsoft, Cisco, Apple, and the big companies all funded this, computer companies, uh, about 21st century skills. And then um, he got all his data in, and then they began to pull out slightly uh, because there wasn't an obvious profit in it. And then the database on which he'd done all this, the Apple platform or something like this, the Apple platform had changed, and there was no way of moving the data onto the next one. So they've had to redo all the data. And I thought, that's very first 21st century, <laughs> that is, isn't it, really? You, you're told your machine's redundant, but you can't move your stuff off the old one. Um, so that's the uh, information literacy and ICT literacy. Um, one of, uh, a point to make, perhaps, is that other people have been saying this for quite some time. And I've gone back to John Dewey, um, who really said most of this stuff, uh, knocking on for a century ago. Uh, and again, I'll leave you um, to read that. I can't resist. Education consists in the formation of wide awake, careful, thorough habits of thinking. What a cracker that is. Um, You might also want to argue that Socrates did a fair bit of that with his, uh, his various approaches to uh, uh, how you learn. Um, and it has been pointed out that um, some of our public schools have been doing this for several centuries, the, uh, the kind of things that we call uh, 21st century skills, the cooperative, the confident, the innovative, the creative, and all that stuff. Um, so the, the question is, why 21st century skills? Why have we suddenly picked up on this? And uh, I think Tina Isaacs gave me the lead on this. The point is that, yes, it's been going on for centuries as this kind of thing, but only for the elite, 
okay? Nobody else needed this stuff. You did what you were told. If you were an industrial worker, a factory worker, your job was to follow the instructions, not to come up with bright ideas and innovative new ways of doing things. That wasn't how it was done. This, is, this may be the first century in which we expect people, even in relatively hum, humdrum jobs, um, to be literate in a sense and collaborative and think for themselves and this kind of a problem solve in a way that we've not expected them before. And that seems to me quite a good interpretation of it, that this is, um, these are now skills uh, that, we, uh, that we all need. Um, so uh, if, if we accept this, if I just jump back and look at these, these kinds of skills, um, these are the things that we're, we're expecting all kids coming out of school, hopefully, to have. Um, my question then is, um, how different is school? If we're expecting students to be very different now with their innovative, um, creative, collaborative approach, uh, how different are our classrooms? And I've just selected a little bit from uh, a piece of John Hattie's work here, where he, um, he did observations, his team did observations of classroom questioning. Uh, and these, this was a summary um, of what he found, that still, in, this is reported in 2012, um, teachers talk 70 to 80% of the time. They ask two to 300 questions a day, which means if you've taught for 14 years, you've asked a million questions. Um, um, 60% rec is about recall of facts, okay? 20% are procedural. Where's your book? Where's your pencil? Where were you? You know, those sorts of things. Um, and he, he noted that less than 5% of classroom time was spent in group discussion or uh, the discussion of meaningful, uh, whole class discussion of meaningful ideas. 70% um, of the answers took students less than five seconds to give uh, and typically had three words in them. I remind you that I don't know has three, three <laughs> words in it as, as well. Just, uh, um, but they, uh, and we asked the question, are the students still sitting in row? Is work still individual uh, at the front? I should say of the, how different do our classrooms look, um, uh, it was Ted Rag that dug out some studies. He did a study of classroom questioning in the 1980s, found very similar results. He'd gone back to... Um, Stevens in 1912 did a study where he found that teachers asked 400 questions a day, so they, they were moving on at that time, but with 65% of them were recall questions. Um, the same happened in, uh, 19, uh, in the 1930s. Haynes did a study. He found 70% of questions were recall, um, and only 17% fostered thinking beyond recall. Nice phrase. And then in 1970, Gaul um, came up with the identical figures uh, to John Hattie, 60-20-20 in, uh, in his study. So um, the, the point here is we're in a brave new era, but what has changed uh, within the classroom? There are changes, but um, there, there may be some very resilient themes here about how we teach uh, and how we learn. Um, Then we move on to what I see as a rival agenda, or a competing agenda. Um, and this is, we're all familiar with this, I don't need to go into much detail on this one. Um, 
the idea of the standards accountability or selection agenda. They come in different shapes in different cultures, I think. Um, and this is all about the need to improve standards in schools uh, in order to compete internationally particularly. Um, it's a fascination and Joanne and the team here have done some good work looking at PISA and just the influence it has on politicians. I find it interesting that PISA is high stakes for politicians, not for schools, not for individuals. It's, it's the politicians. And we did an interesting little study. If, if, the minister, if you do well in PISA, you claim it, the country is on its way. If you get worse, the opposition point out what a load of, you know, your, your reforms have done nothing, we're, we're sinking down. Uh, nobody takes account of how many new nations have joined. Or, uh, normally what we do is we just, uh, and Norway does it as well, you compare yourself, we've beaten Sweden, thank goodness for that, you know, and, uh, we're edging up, to, oh, what's Scotland done? And we know Wales will have done badly, so, you know, it, um, so, so it's that to international league tables where ministerial reputations are, uh, are on the front. That's high stakes for them. Um, then we've got accountability systems uh, which are intended to provide uh, pressure and incentives um, uh, for, for schools. Uh, we've got performance pay, school targets, state targets, national targets. Um, uh, probably England is one of the few nations where you could argue that um, because uh, a government didn't reach the target it had set itself, 85% at level four or whatever it was, um, a minister resigned. I think Estelle Morris had one or two other problems as well, but um, it was this, whereas people like Blunkett just moved the, uh, the date forward. You know, uh, it's not this year, it's going to be three years from now, we'll be at 85% and that kind of thing. But it's the, uh, the whole thing of um, needing to put pressure on schools um, and school targets. And I was just hearing from Alison earlier that the whole thing about Key Stage 2, where teachers tell basically big whopping fibs to kids to get them motivated in order to um, do well in the test. Because it's not for the kids. The results don't matter that much for the children. They're not high stakes. They're high stakes for the school. So the school has to somehow motivate the children to do well uh, in, in the system. Um, and, and we're familiar with that kind of thing. And the American No Child Left Behind has got these similar, uh, similar pressures, um, as has Australia, which is now into uh, uh, its NAPLAN and, uh, and state targets and state competitions about which state's on top and which isn't. Uh, so it's a familiar scenario. Most of you know it well. Um, and the idea that it's test results that are often used as a key measure of improvement. Um, and as soon as we do this, we get teaching to the test, we get playing the system. Um, the American playing the system is you just retain kids the year below when the test will be in secondary school. So you've got a great mob of kids uh, who are not allowed to, uh, to move up to the next year. And they, you keep leave them there a couple of years and they'll drop out anyway. So you, you get some miracle results in America uh, from the years that those who actually get up there. It's all gaming the system, playing, playing the system. Um, then the other one of these is the idea of high-stakes selection. Um, some countries are not that worried about the accountability of schools. They're not doing league tales. They're not doing the same sort of intensity 
of checking on school performance uh, that we are and other countries are. Um, but what you get there is how it's the selection for the next phase of education that becomes so critical. So you've, it isn't that the, uh, the school needs the good results directly, it's that the children, the parents, uh, need the kids to get good results. And I choose the example of, of Singapore, and I know I'll upset some who are around, um, but it's the idea of such is the pressure of selection in Singapore um, that it's eyes down for the exam at 11 years old from about age 8. Uh, the Perry reform there, the formative assessment reform, could only work for the first two years of primary because there was a lot of parental resistance and other resistance saying this isn't preparing them for the test, the selection test. That's a, 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 an oversimplification, but it's around. I should say as well, one of Singapore's concerns, uh, and the policymakers are well aware of this, is the, the lack of their concern about the lack of creativity from many of their students, because they're so worried about getting good marks in exams. They, they won't take any chances, they don't do anything necessarily very creative. And so Singapore, when I was last there, we're, we're asking the question, uh, how do we get our students to be more creative? So we're going over there to find out how to get good exam results. They're coming over here to say, how do you get people to be a bit more creative about things? Um, but it, it's, it's an interesting one, and we were faced with the question, should we have creativity lessons in Singapore? And we all said, uh, it was a, a group of us, said no. Uh, if you want to be creative, teach maths creatively. If you want to be creative, make your science creative. Don't get one lesson a week on creativity. <laughs> you, some of you, I, I, I must be careful where, where I look when I say this kind of thing. There's a bit of carbon dating goes on at this point. But some of you will remember creativity tests, you know. And the more psychotic you were, the better you did, actually. Um, <laughs> ten uses of a brick. Jewelers' windows, you know. So the whole thing there was um, how do we incorporate uh, a high-pressure uh, selective exam system and then at the same time say to kids, we want you to be creative, we want you to think for yourself, we want you to be innovative. And the kids are saying, no, thank you, I need my grades. Um, this, is what, this is what we're doing. And the other one I've got down here is Bethel. Um, George Bethel wrote a lovely piece in Assessment in Education, an article um, about uh, university selection in uh, ex-Soviet uh, states, uh, former Soviet uh, Union states. Um, and he makes the point that the pressure is so high um, that there are problems there. He was writing about the problems of just securing reliable results for people because the pressure to cheat is just enormous. And a quote of his is, um, is about uh, the system in which a single mark can make the difference between, for example, a university place and a year in military service. Um, that's really uh, stoking up the selective pressures at this point. Uh, and whether it isn't a question of how creative do we need to be, how collaborative and everything else, it's how can I get the grade. So these are the kinds of tensions 
I think we have there. Um, and I, I, I like this cartoon, I have done for a number of years. It was a 1991 cartoon and nothing much has changed, it seems to me, in some ways. Uh, it's the education president um, pointing the gun and the gunner tests. Um, you, will, you will learn. We will get you learning. There will be sanctions if you don't, etc., etc. Okay, so I think I've made um, enough fuss about this. Um, you, so we've got two agendas. We've got the, the creative 21st century learner. We've got another agenda about accountability selection. And these two don't sit comfortably together, would be my, my argument here. Um, but I want to move on and look at learning and ask, out of this system, what kind of learning do we want? Um, and one of the, I think David Bowd is, has done as a service here with his idea of the double duty of assessment, um, which has to focus on the immediate tasks, so that's exams and what do you know and that kind of thing, and on implications for equipping students for lifelong learning in an unknown future. They have to attend to both the process and the substantive domains. If we could get that right, we'd be, uh, we'd be doing okay. Um, the here and now, but the way we get them in the here and now prepares students for the future at the same time. Um, this is the same as systemically valid assessment, Fredrickson and Collins. I'll let you read that one. And you, you can make a big argument that our exams don't encourage the very skills that we say we're examining uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the time. Um, so let me, um, let me look at the kinds of learning I'm, I'm interested in. Uh, and I like Michael Leroux's um, definition here, a significant change in capability or understanding. And he says this excludes the acquisition of further information when it does not contribute to such changes. Um, this is the idea of when we learn something at a deeper level, we change. When we've learnt it, we're different from that moment onwards. That's the idea of ca um, capacity change. Uh, it's the, um, the aha moment, the light bulb moment, the penny dropping moment, where suddenly we say, oh, I get it now, I understand it now. And from that moment, we're different uh, in terms of the way we process new information, the way we make, make sense of things. Um, I usually contrast this with what I call trivial pursuits knowledge, which is what he calls this acquisition when it doesn't contribute to such changes. Trivial pursuits knowledge is where you're asked a, a trivial pursuits question and you actually know the answer. Um, and you think, why have I bothered to carry that answer? Why do I know the answer to that Doris Day or the golf <laughs> tee or whatever it is? Um, why, do I, why have I bothered to store that when there's lots of important things I've forgotten along the way? And this is the idea that we have lots of knowledge um, that we have, we've not incorporated, we've not made sense of. It's just out there, it makes no difference to us and it may pop up from time to time or it may not. Um, but the, the, the knowledge we're really interested in is the, the knowledge that makes sense of things, organises, begins to organise our knowledge better, our understandings better. Um, so this is where the, uh, uh, the, the expert learning bit uh, com comes in. Um, I got interested in looking at experts um, 
it was an interesting, as they say, journey. Um, I, I would just, uh, it's one of those little serendipitous things. I just read M Malcolm Gladwell's Outliers and thought, cool, what a book. Um, so that led me on to um, um, Matthew Syed's Bounce, if you're interested in sport. Um, that's, that's one there. And this is all about how do people become uh, top performers uh, in, in things. What's, what's on? Um, probably the big surprise there was that education has made no use of this stuff. There's a vast, vast array of information um, about this. Um, there's the whole, um, there's a Cambridge handbook of expert learning and expertise, or the other way around. Um, 900 pages, half a chapter on education. The rest is about pilots, drivers, doctors, scientists, how they get to where they get. And there's nothing about how education contributes to this. And I'll come back to that a little bit. Um, but this is what um, uh, some of the, uh, a summary of some of the things we expect from expert behaviour. Uh, the one I'm particularly interested in, and we'll pick up a little more, is number three, the idea of um, superior detection, recognition, patterns and deep structures uh, in, in what we're learning. I think that, um, that has a lot of implications for the, uh, for the classroom. Um, so let me... What, what I've then done is, is really um, distill what the, um, the expertise literature talks about as some of the key ingredients of expert learning. Um, and what I'll do is go through each of these briefly and just pick up and relate it uh, to, to education. Uh, the, f the first idea is um, that of opportunities. You, become an ex you can't become an expert without opportunities. Um, England hasn't produced a top camel racing jockey in years, um, really. Um, it's about the time, the place, the people. Um, where you were born, when you were born, who you're surrounded with are essential parts of this. Where did you get the opportunity? Um, I've got two examples there. Bill Gates is out with Malcolm Gladwell. Um, it's an interesting story, and I'll, gi I'll give you it briefly. Some of you will know it, but um, Bill Gates went to a a kind of pri yeah, private school on the, the west coast of America, and uh, well-heeled. And um, the, the mother's club there had, had some money left over from their bake sales or whatever they were doing, and they said, we'll set up a little computer room. And one of the governors just happened to be uh, a director of a mainframe computing company and said, well, we'll give you a real-time terminal. Now, you've got to appreciate... Um, this is the opportunities. It was in the 1950s when uh, Joy, uh, when all the top first generation, they were all born within three years of each other, in 52 to 55, Bill Gates, um, Job, Steve Jobs, um, Steve, anyway. Um, so Bill Gates it, it just happens to be in a school with a, a, a real-time computer terminal, and he, he gets addicted pretty quickly. Um, as did his sidekick, um, who also co-founded with him uh, Microsoft. 
and they just spent hours and hours doing this, this stuff. By the time he was 14 or 15, he was doing payrolls for local companies, right, in the programmes. Um, by the time he was, um, by the time he was 16, um, he was seriously doing this stuff and uh, he, they got chucked out of one company because they hacked in and played with the computer and that kind of thing. So uh, his mate said, um, did you know there's an all-night computer uh, centre at the university down the road and nobody uses it in the early hours of the morning? Um, so again, uh, Bill Gates was down there at three, four o'clock in the morning uh, doing a couple of hours and then he'd come home. Later his mum said, uh, I always wondered why he was so tired. Um, he'd crept out the house, gone down there, done a couple of hours, come back. So by the time he was 18, um, we get the magical 10,000 hours will crop up from time to time. Um, he'd done so much programming that for his school project, and you've got to credit the school for this one, for being a bit flexible, I think it was Westinghouse said we need to do our whole payroll. Giant corporation. Um, can we borrow? Can we borrow Bill, please, for three months? Um, so they said, yes, we'll call it your school project. Okay, so his school project was the whole pay bill for Westinghouse um, Power Company and the like. I, I give you this sort of detail because the myth is he goes to Stanford or wherever he was, Harvard, for half a term, thinks, oh, I've had an idea. Um, I think I'll set up a computing company. Um, you know, out of the blue. In fact, he'd done more programming than anybody else in the probably in the university at that point. He'd, he'd done his uh, apprenticeship, if you like, and it was from that stage he then moved into the... He could work out what you could do with this stuff because he knew it so intimately. Uh, I'm going to give you one more, um, and that's Steve Redgrave, the rower. Uh, five gold medals in five separate uh, Olympics. Um, who came up with the immortal one after the, uh, the fourth Olympics, where the interviewer rushed up to him in a boat and said, what's it like? To and he said, if you ever see me in a boat again, you have my permission to shoot me. <laughs> okay. And he, he was back for the fifth um, uh, and won that as well. But he went to, um, you'd it was a comprehensive, but it was a sink comprehensive because it was in Henley uh, and every everybody else was grammar and posh. Um, so he went to this, he called himself a secondary modern kid, for those who know the language of that. Um, he had a mad English teacher who loved rowing, um, a guy called Francis Smith, who just decided he would get this school to have a rowing team. And he borrowed boats, he did all sorts of stuff, and went out, got this team together. Um, and they, um, he trained them so hard and they enjoyed it that um, they won the national championship, the under-16. And I think there was a, a certain amount of pleasure when they turned out, he called it string vests and knotted handkerchiefs against um, the well-decked well um, private school team, all in their nice uniforms and things like that, and sort of uh, thrashed the life out of them. Um, and it, what I like is Francis Smith wouldn't stand a chance now because one of his training methods, this is safeguarding for you, uh, one of his train, training methods was to say, get in the car to the team at lunchtime and he'd drive off and he'd say, now get out and run back to school. <laughs> <laughs> Good way to train. Um, but just imagine off, Ofsted coming in that day. <laughs> oh. um, Anyway, that's the opportunity. And, and what, I want to, what I want to pick up is the stuff at the bottom. 
that this is essentially an apprenticeship model. You start off as naive, you become a novice, a uh, barista in training, um, you then pr progress to an apprentice, um, and a proficient apprentice, used to be called a journeyman apprentice, quite like that. You could be trusted to go off for a day, that meant, or for a period of time to do the job. And my son, and he is an expert in this area, um, says uh, that the, the expressions, you're sacked, he has experience, um, and you're fired, also, um, it came from the idea that uh, if you were a bad apprentice, they used to bundle up your tools and put them in a sack and say, you're sacked, off you go. If you were really bad, they used to burn your tools. <laughs> and that's what you're fired means. You may re trivial pursuits, knowledge, you probably... <laughs> sad thing is, you'll you re remember nothing else from this lecture. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and, uh, and I don't trust the word my son says, um, but uh, I tried to look it up on Google just to confirm it, and I can't find anything on it. So uh, Anyway, so take, take that for the moment. Um, so this is it, the idea of opportunities. Um, what I've done in the book, but I've promised myself I'm not going to get excited about this evening, though I will, um, is the idea of where this f uh, fits with ability. Um, because my, it's, it's a tenuous sort of challenge, is that um, the reason education hasn't taken up much on the expertise model is we're still in the thrall of the ability model. Uh, that what we're doing is still saying some kids have got it and some haven't, and it's a kind of genetic thing. You come to school with ability, you don't develop it, okay? That uh, your school performance is simply a reflection of your inborn uh, stuff. Matthew Syed takes a very different view of this. Uh, child prodigies do not have unusual genes, they have unusual upbringings, which if you l the more you look at it, um, the more truth there is in it. And in the book, I've gone through a number of people uh, of their early years. Um, uh, yes, Tiger Woods was playing golf when he was three, again, because he had a mad father who used to hang him up in his garage when he was six months old, a year old, to watch Earl Woods uh, stroke like this. By the time he was two, he had his own golf clubs and was out on the golf course. And by the time he was three, he was on TV because he could hit the ball so far. Um, uh, this, is, this is the kind of opportunities. Matthew Syed's got a nice story himself. Um, that the, he, um, he lived in a road in Reading. His parents weren't keen on table tennis. They bought him and his brother a table tennis table for the garage. But the key thing was, there was a, down the road, there was a table tennis hut um, that was open 24 hours a day, every day of the week. And it was run by a primary school teacher who wasn't interested in teaching, really, but he was a table tennis coach, and he was just fanatical about it. And Matthew Sides points out that at one point in the um, 1960s, I think, um, half the top players in England came from the same road in <laughs> Reading. All right? Um, and you, you can say it's genetic, and there was something funny going on in that road. Uh, <laughs> or there was something in the drinking water, or you could say there was something about having these opportunities with a skilled coach who was just fanatical about turning out good table tennis players. I'm not going to comment on this stuff here. Um, Sir Cyril Burt, I think, captures it nicely, uh, the, uh, the idea of inborn fixed ability. Uh, I think we're challenging it to, to some extent now, but it's still around. 
Um, those of you who are, are historians of this will know that Alfred Binet didn't say that of Sir Cyril Burke because he was dead by then, um, but he did, he did pick it up um, about Galton and Cattell who were saying the same sorts of things back in the 19th century. Um, uh, Binet picked up immediately, um, we must react against this, uh, our duty is to increase intelligence. That was his view. That's when he was put in charge of the French special schools, the Paris special schools, he said his job was to prepare students so that they would be able to uh, move into, into other schools. So Cyril Burt was the chief psychologist for London um, uh, special schools uh, with this particular view. Um, not exactly a bright, positive uh, thing. I think what they did was they, they said, well, that's true of G for those interested in this, but there is special intelligence we might be able to do something with. Um, uh, uh, Dave Gilborn, Deborah Udell, um, quite a nice one. I think those of you who go in school staff rooms and the like um, will know there's a huge amount of ability talk. Kids are low ability, high ability, mixed ability. Gifted and talented is a particular favourite of mine. Um, particularly those schools, there's a chain of schools where kids wear I am gifted and talented badges. Okay? I've asked if they give the other 90% I am ungifted and untalented badges, but they um, didn't reply. Um, <laughs> but that, that whole notion of mixed ability, high ability, lower, no ability is a good one. Um, there, and they're pointing out that if we put IQ or intelligence in there, it would ring just a little bit uncomfortably at least. Um, and then uh, Susan Hart, ability labelling exerts an active, powerful force within school and classroom processes, helping to create the very disparities of achievement it purports to explain. Self-fulfilling, and I think that's dead right. If you're put in the top stream, you get the top teaching, uh, etc., and the whole thing fulfils itself. If you're in the bottom stream, uh, that's unlikely to happen. Uh, Joe Bowler points out that uh, where now the encouragement to stream kids at age five and six, uh, if you're streamed for maths at age five, if you're in the bottom set, uh, she calculates there's an 88% chance you'll be in the bottom set age 16. Okay, there's no, there's no movement once you, uh, once you have that kind of script, that kind <coughs> of label. But let me, um, let me lighten the mood a little here. Um, Malcolm Gladwell, why is it that 40% of professional Canadian ice hockey players were born between January and March and another 30% between April and June? 70% of professional ice hockey players born between January and June. Talk to your neighbour and let's have a solution.
Okay, let's come back with the solution. A solution. Any thoughts? Offers? Done? Uh, why are they older? Yeah, yeah, yeah. January the first is the Canadian Little League cutoff. Um, so if you were born on January the second, and you're playing against somebody who was born December the twentieth, you're a year older, near enough. And in things like ice hockey, a year is quite a difference. So on you come smack this little kid in, into the railings, as you do, um, and people say, he's got talent, that kid. There. Look, at he's much more mobile, he's much more, etc. Um, the interesting one, and I'm not going to push it further, but the, uh, the summer-born uh, children uh, with scholastic achievement, Pam Salmons here has done uh, the big work on that, that if you're born in the summer, that cohort will be behind the cohort born in the winter right up to the first year of university. It doesn't what the effect doesn't wash out till then. Um, and that's a maturational position in the... I, I don't know what it is. It's obviously quite complex. Um, but on, on average, that's, that's where it leads us. So this, I'm talking here about the opportunities where you put... Um, James Flint calls it multipliers. What's the, the small advantage that gives you a, an advantage? You get benefits because of this small advantage. You're bigger. So you get put in the squad, you get better training, you look better then, then you're selected for more. And before you know where you are, you're a natural and the other kid is um, just ordinary, really. Um, and it, it all stems from some very tiny differences along the way. Um, let me move on to the second bit, the idea of um, you, don't get, you don't become an expert by accident. You don't just drift into being an expert. It's quite hard work becoming an expert, as many of you know. Um, and often it's to do with clear goals. Um, and you look at sports, and again, David Beckham's playing when he's three uh, in his Manchester United shirt, knows where he wants to get to. Um, strong motivation, resilience, and risk-taking. I'm particularly interested in risk-taking in learning. But uh, Marie Curie's a lovely example of this um, as a Polish... Um, a Polish woman who enjoyed science, of course she couldn't go to university in Poland because she was a woman, so she saves up, works for three years as a governess and then takes herself off to the Sorbonne where she just about starves um, but manages to come top in her maths and physics and is the first person to win two Nobel Prizes in different subjects. Um, and the first woman to get a PhD, etc. Complete determination and working in appalling circumstances with, on radiation using disused glass. She'd, got, she'd begged from a glass factory and working at considerable risk to her health and everything else uh, on radium. Um, but it, and being mocked for it as well, people not agreeing with her because she was saying that uh, uh, actually radioactivity... The, it's given out, everybody else, the normal science of the time was it simply reflected off materials. She said, no, this is actually so powerful, it's being given out by materials. That upsets people, and, they get, and we know Darwin, we know just about anybody who's made a major uh, scientific breakthrough uh, gets an earful from the established community because it's upsetting, uh, and so you need a lot of resilience. And the one I want to pick up on is the idea of 
powerful mental frameworks. We saw that earlier, that experts have ways of organising their information, what they know, that makes them powerful in terms of the way they can take new information, the way they can handle information. Um, and I just want to give you uh, another little challenge here. I want you to please remember the code, if you could. Okay, uh, that should be long enough. Um, so if I asked you to write that as a code, um, I don't see anybody reaching for their pens. It's like a good classroom, this. Yeah, I've not got a pen with me, no paper, I can't do it. Um, if I give you this, if you spot the pattern, um, you c if we go back, that's a doddle. It takes a bit of time to work it out, but you know you know how you're going to do it. I'll just go again. Once you've once you've spotted the pattern, and and my point here is that um, this is what we're doing uh, a great deal with things like learning intentions and success criteria. We're trying to give kids the bigger picture, how things fit together, why they they fit together, um, and often we don't. In, in classrooms. One of our problems is we, we just expect them to look at that and then do that. And you're lucky if you remember two digits of that. But if you can make sense of it, you become quite a powerful learner. And this is this whole movement, I think, about um, the, the idea of um, helping kids understand the big picture, why they're doing stuff. And this is a kind of effective learning I'm particularly interested in. Um, John Hattie's, uh, when, he, when he's asked what are the three key things uh, for, uh, for teachers, transparent goals, making them clear, um, success criteria, um, the more they understand where they're going, the more powerful and engaged they're learning. If they know where they're trying to get to, and that just fits the expert stuff very nicely, and rapid formative feedback. Um, uh, just some uh, telling student comments here, making a similar point uh, from another direction. Um, Joe Bowler's got this particular interest in girls in mathematics who a thesis and everything was about girls in top sets asking to come out of top sets because it was going so fast they couldn't understand what they were doing and they liked to understand what they, uh, they were doing. So they were asking to, to slow down so they could think about what they're doing. I think boys just think of it as a game and see how quickly you can get to the solutions. They not need to know why. Um, and always the, the disengaged can often put their finger on it, the low achieving student can often put their finger on what goes there, what's going on in the, in the system there. Um, no, I'll, this is Fred, uh, Frederick Bartlett doing the same thing. Uh, if you read that and I ask you to remember it in order to write it down, And what he did was half the group got two words just to queue up the schema. Um, sorting, washing, okay? And when you know the two words, 
this somehow makes a bit more sense. Complications can easily arise, the blue sock in the whitewash and all that kind of thing. I'm not pressing this further, it's simply how being able to develop a schema, a way of organising how you process information is a powerful way uh, of learning. Um, let me move on now to the idea of um, uh, extensive deliberate practice. Um, Malcolm Gladwell's popularised the idea of 10,000 hours of deliberate practice. Nobody gets to the top. And he does the Beatles in Hamburg having to play night after night. Um, he, he looks at athletes, he looks at other people, and musicians particularly, top orchestral musicians, um, have, have put in this practice. And it's the deliberate bit that's important. We all can practice, um, but how deliberate is our practice? Are we trying to improve? Or are we just trying to enjoy doing it, just uh, being busy with it, as it were? Um, and I've got it's a um, couple of unlikely supports here. I've just come across Doug Lemoff, um, the, the guy who wrote um, uh, Teach Like a Champion, which is a multi-million seller and things in the States. Uh, and he's doing Practice Perfect, and he's just looking at we don't, his, his whole point here is we don't give kids enough practice, good practice, accurate practice, correct practice. We give them practice, but they're practicing doing it wrong most of the time because we're not there in, in time to deal with it. He also picks up on the idea that teachers, he asks, why don't teachers practice before they go into a lesson? Why don't they think, what if in this lesson, pilots do it, we know this from the expert literature. Pilots, expert pilots, are forever thinking what if as they fly. What if this happens? What if that happens? Um, and sometimes as teachers we just go in and it happens and we respond and it happens again the next day. And it's this whole process of, um, well, should we not practice the things that make it successful? What do we need to do here? Um, and another unlikely source is um, Daisy Christodoulou. Um, with her seven myths of, about education, coming from a fairly overwrite position, but fascinating because making the same point that you can't be an expert unless you've done the work on the way. You can't just say to kids, imagine you're an expert, because they're not. They're novices, uh, and we need, to, uh, we need to help them move from being a novice um, uh, to being an expert, and probably the book doesn't do enough on that, my book. Um, so let's just look at this. Um, the 10,000 hours, um, the iceberg illusion, nice one from Anders Ericsson, the idea that when you see a performance and you think that's just magical, that's just a, just a natural, this kid. Um, check what's underneath. Um, we've just seen the surface. What's gone on before that performance? Um, and that's the whole thing with being a natural as well. Most of the naturals have practiced more than anybody else. Uh, and we know this from sport. It's simply that they practice so effectively, it becomes automatic. So they make it look so fluid. Um, we do it that way. And uh, Howard Gardner's got a nice one here on this as well. The whole dilemma of, uh, of coverage. Uh, I like this one. Um, the idea of 
comfort zone, learning zone and panic zone. Um, the idea being that often we, when we're practicing, we practice in the comfort zone. I practice tennis and I say to my opponent or partner, um, let's practice tennis but let's not bother with serving. I'm no good at serving and it spoils the practice. Um, you know a professional tennis player, if the serve's not any good, what do you practice? You practice the serve, the thing you need to get better at. So the idea of leaving the comfort zone into the learning zone, and you could do the old zone of proximal development and all that stuff there. I like the idea of you can also go beyond that to the panic zone uh, in which uh, you actually regress beyond uh, the, the comfort zone e even. Put yourself through this one. You may speak to your partner um, next to you. I don't care what results you've got there, but what I like about it is it way the stunned silence. I can guarantee it. Joe Bolas, it's one of Joe Bolas, and she said, you can guarantee adults will fall silent when they see this because they're not quite sure what, how to approach it, where to place it, make, how to make sense of it. Um, if you're in... Uh, I've never understood the top one, so I'm not even going to comment. <laughs> uh, I, I have no idea how that works, but I like the second one. Um, and I think the third one is glorious. Just do nine, nine, nine slices of turkey and then divide it by four and count up one, two, two and a quarter. Um, and I did that with uh, a group of teachers and they said, uh, any child who did that would lose marks, <laughs> of course, because it's the wrong method. <laughs> okay. Um, so let me, I'm moving rapidly along here. Um, skill diagnostics and feedback um, are the other element in this that nobody gets, uh, becomes an expert without some expert mentoring. And you notice that how um, athletes change coaches and musicians particularly change their teachers at various points because they need one who can take them further and further. So th it, that's all in there. Um, so the idea of finding out where learners are and teach accordingly um, I've drawn on um, medical, uh, clinical diagnosis uh, in the chapter for this, but the idea of talking to the patient um, pr provides the essential clues. And just to up the status of Lisa Sanders, uh, she was the technical uh, advisor for House MD. And we all know, <laughs> we all know how good he was, the grumpy old sod. But um, <laughs> it's uh, um, at spotting things. Um, so the importance of talk. Uh, Robin Alexander, I think this is a nice one. Um, the only real uh, writing is the only real school. If if we'd done a lesson as a teacher without any writing in it, we'd probably felt the kids hadn't worked during the lesson. Uh, but there's good evidence from continental schools and things. They can spend a whole lesson discussing something, and that counts as, as work. Um, but, uh, 
so uh, language and thought related, scarcity of talk, uh, low level of cognitive demands. Um, I, I suspect it's apocryphal, but I like the idea that when Einstein came home from school, his mum didn't say, what did you do in school today? She asked, uh, what questions did you ask in school today? Nice, nice thought. Look at the trouble that got him in. Um, that, that, that there. Um, I'm also th um, reminded that uh, uh, as, this, as somebody, uh, well, 90% of quotations on the internet uh, have been made up. Abraham Lincoln said that. Okay. Uh, how well do we listen? Um, all this is, this is a lot of text. Um, we, when we go to the doctors, we've normally got quite a story we want to tell about this. Whether we get through the story, and we know the story will actually give the clues, um, but whether we get through the story is another matter because doctors like to interrupt. Um, and sometimes uh, the average is 16 seconds you've got to tell your story of your ail ailment. Um, and once the story was interrupted, patients were unlikely to resume it. Um, only 2% of uh, patients completed it. As an educational psychologist, one of the things that surprised me and that, that I learned is that is just how ready teachers are to interrupt kids explaining something, usually with you should or you need to. Um, and teachers who are parents, this is a real risk. Um, you know, it's, it's a double whammy um, that we're forever saying you should, you ought, you need to, uh, rather than listening to the story. And there's many a kid been interrupted who had a really interesting story to tell. Uh, I was privileged as an educational psychologist because I had time in a one-to-one -one and you could hear the story out. But th this had rarely happened to these kids in school. Um, here's a nice one. Um, the idea of when somebody gives us a wrong answer, how do we investigate that? Um, how much is seven minus four, two, how do you get that answer? Look at that. Um, and it's, uh, I think it's Mike Hughes who says the difference between a good teacher and a very good teacher is one more why question. Okay, when you've heard it, you ask again. You just take, an, uh, take another layer, uh, try and get un under it as a question. Um, you, Sir John Gurdon um, of, of Cambridge, uh, the, the rival, um, 2012 Nobel Prize winner in biology. Um, you may have seen the, the story here that he went to Eton, um, but he managed to, to his credit, come last out of over 250 kids in biology. Now that tells you something, because he was already at that stage classifying butterflies, modelling uh, the growth of plants. Here's his report, and this is, leads into expert learning because this is the idea that experts, uh, kids who want to be experts, who grow up to be experts, often want to do it their own way. Okay? This has been a disastrous half year. His work has been far from satisfactory. His prepared stuff has been badly learned and several times he's been in trouble because he will not listen, but will insist on doing work his own way. I believe he has ideas about becoming a scientist. On his present form, this is quite ridiculous. 
Uh, they don't write reports like this anymore, do they? Um, if he can't learn simple biological facts, he would have no chance doing the work of a specialist. And it would be a sheer waste of time, both on his part and those who teach him. And um, he wasn't allowed to do science at Eton as a result of that. He had to do Greek and Latin as a kind of punishment, really. Um, and he had to find a way around the system in order to study science. And um, he, when he got his uh, Nobel uh, Prize, he says he's still got that report pinned on the wall. Uh, and sometimes when an experiment goes wrong, he says, perhaps that teacher was right. <laughs> um, it, uh, um, but the notion that um, the importance of choice and giving kids choice about how they solve problems and the big American study, Csikszentmihalyi, I can never pronounce his name. I'd use him a lot more if I could say his name, actually. Um, he did a wonderful study of people who went on to be top mathematicians, top scientists. And one of the things they all said is, we like choice. We like to be given the freedom to work things out for ourselves. We don't like the teacher telling us all the time how to do things. Um, I'm moving on rapidly here to feedback. Um, and one of the things we know about rapid feedback is it has to be specific and clear. Um, this is my favourite from a school I did some work in about the quality of their written feedback to, uh, to students. What I love about this is the kid has written the thermochromic ink in this changes colour from the temperature from your forehead. It tells you if you are too hot. Continue to improve handwriting and spelling. <laughs> the nerve. Um, <laughs> I calculated in this that 25% of the comments could not be read, uh, written on the back of a motorbike or something. Um, and a, we know a kid isn't going to say, what does this say, sir? It's your problem if they can't read it. And then to compound this, the, the worst feedback of all, explain the science. This kid thought he had explained the science. That's what this is about. This is the kind of feedback Kluger and Denise point out that something like 40% of feedback that's given drives learning backwards. It doesn't, it's not neutral, it certainly doesn't move it forward, it moves it backwards. And this feels to me uh, as a classic example of that. Um, explain the science when the kid thinks, it, what bit of the science, what does that mean? Where's the specific in that? Um, my adult example of this is you've just failed a job interview and I'm going to give you some feedback. Interview better. Okay. Or you've just failed your driving test. Drive better. Okay. <laughs> Doesn't it, I hope you get that kind of ooh feel that actually is a negative experience. Uh, let me move on to, uh, uh, to one more a good piece of feedback from the art department there. The idea, uh, I've picked this up in the book about sports coaches. Good sports coaches just pick out one thing you need to do. They don't try and tell you to do seven different things um, uh, because that just confuses and makes things uh, uh, a lot worse. Um, lovely drawing, big and bold, keep the pencil really sharp uh, so the edges are hard and crisp. So um, Jeff Petty says medals and mission. We need to give a medal for what's been done well and then we need to give a mission. And he says the problem with, uh, with lots of uh, high-achieving kids is they get nothing but medals and no mission, not asked to think anymore about it. And the lower-achieving kids get no medals and all missions, all the kind of things you should be doing uh, and need to do. 
So let me, let me just return to this, uh, the idea of uh, the double duty of assessment. Um, focus on the immediate task, equipping uh, students for lifelong learning in an unknown future. The, the idea that um, we've got to produce kids who learn in a way that they want to understand, they're resilient and they can make sense of things uh, for themselves. I like Piaget's definition of intelligence, knowing what to do when you don't know what to do. Um, it's, uh, if we can produce students like that, that for me is effective learning. Um, so I'm going to finish there. Um, I d uh, as you, Joanne said, I am a, a wandering minstrel when it comes to know, but I feel like um, if you go to concerts, especially small concerts, and I'm sure many of you do, um, uh, one of the pleas of the musicians is, um, uh, I've got some CDs at the back of the room, <laughs> and I would like you to, I don't want to take them back with me, and that kind of thing. Well, there's books outside as well, if anybody's uh, interested. So this is product placement. Just try and get it in the camera there, um, uh, as you do. Um, uh, if you haven't got the money with you, um, we'll do it on trust. Just take a book and send me some. I've left an address out there. Oh, send me, it's 15 quid. Um, send, send me it. I should stop, I shouldn't really end on a commercial break. Let's, um, let's have some questions. <laughs>